Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Andrew Berkshire. Andrew, what's going on, man? Not much. Just excited to be on. I think this is like the third or fourth time I've been on the PDO cast, so I'm you know, pretty jazzed. I'm becoming almost a, a regular. Yes, you're, you are becoming at least a semi-regular. I mean, we had you on a couple times in a row there at the start of the season when we did that top 10 series, which people were um surprisingly okay with I, I didn't get too much hate mail i mean obviously there was you know people would be like oh you need to have nicholas bags from here but it would just be like caps fans and, and sort of stuff like that so no it wasn't anything too outrageous or, or too angry so i feel like uh that means we probably did a pretty good job yeah i wonder maybe it's just like people are so busy being angry about politics these days but there's just like less anger about sports I, I find like i don't know if i've insulated myself with blocks and mutes to the to the point where i just don't see it as much mm-hmm. but i get far more angry tweets about anything politics than hockey these days which i think is pretty reasonable i mean i, I don't really want to get too much into politics here because i feel like you know people generally tune into this show to, to get their dose of hockey but it is one of those things where it's it's tough to you know when you put everything in perspective it's like it's tough to get too worked up about uh, um, what's ultimately a game when really important kind of life stuff is, is happening out there in the real world so i i kind of get where people are coming from there absolutely we get to stick to this fun stuff yes yeah well okay so i brought you on to help me do a deep dive on the on the montreal Canadiens, who you're very familiar with but i think that a good starting point for us here would be to touch on the blues and, and the ken hitchcock firing a bit here we're recording this on a wednesday morning early afternoon your time in in, in montreal so we're okay let's start here is are you okay with this move from just an outsider's perspective? Or do you think it's one of those things where it's just another coach that was basically just done in by the percentages, particularly just the sloppy goaltending that he was receiving? Well, I mean, I I think the problem with the blues is definitely more to do with how they've managed their peak years than it has been about Ken Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that the goaltending has consistently been a problem as much as I like Brian Elliott. Uh, he's not like a 60-game guy, and they they never had that like peak starter. 
uh, you know, there's lots of stuff working against the Blues right now. You know, uh, someone mentioned today that Alex Steen has kind of fallen off the cliff again or uh, this season, which, you know, that happens to guys his age. And it's not something that you can really control or even necessarily predict what year it's going to happen. And, you know, uh, Patrick Berglund looked like he was going to be a great player for a really long time. And then now, you know, he's only a decent player and the blues have a lot of those types of guys. And, you know, people have looked at uh, losing David Backus, but you know, Backus hasn't been that great in Boston either. And while Boston has some great underlying numbers, they don't look like they're going to make the playoffs either. So it's a, it's a tough situation for the blues. It's almost one of those things where you look at, they've never been as great as the sum of their parts. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you can look at coaching as a problem for that, but I don't know. I think Ken Hitchcock's a pretty good coach. I I don't even know what's particularly wrong with the Blues for the last few years outside of being in a really tough division and getting a ton of tough breaks. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, if you were going to make one complaint about Hitchcock, it would be his handling of Tarasenko, particularly in the playoffs last year. But, I mean, other than that, like, it's it's pretty clear that he's gotten – quite a bit out of this group i mean they've been it's i understand it's not very satisfying for fans of their team maybe or it's easy to poke fun at them because they haven't really had those long playoff runs except for last year when they made the conference finals but it's like they've just ran into you know the blackhawks juggernauts and and the la kings when they were on the top of their game and that stuff sort of happens i mean there's nothing wrong with consistently being one of the top teams in your conference and at least giving yourself a fighting chance come the postseason and they've done that for years now and i wonder i guess we'll see what happens under mike yo i think that it's 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 they're in an interesting spot here because they do have to make some decisions you know who they want to have on their team moving forward and whether they want to try and keep guys or whether they want to trade them now while they still can get some value for them. But it's kind of tough when you look around in the landscape and, and the, at the central division. I mean, you know, the Minnesota Wild look really good, for example, but I don't necessarily think anyone is overly frightened about playing them in a playoff series. And beyond that, it's, you know, the Blackhawks have very serious flaws right now. The Predators aren't as good as we necessarily thought they'd be heading into the year. The the Stars have completely fallen off the map and might not even make the playoffs. And it's like the central division is is pretty much there for the taking like this in a weird roundabout way it might be one of their best chances to actually uh, make a long run here but mm, I guess you know they are the type of team and type of organization that wants to you know get ahead of the curve and not necessarily uh, be paying a ton of money for their guys so it makes sense that they'd want to try and figure it out now while they still can yeah for sure and and you know they're they're a team that as much as they do have some young guys who will will be great for a long time, like uh, having Colton Pareko and Vladimir Tarasenko being like their their future on forward and defense is, is a huge thing. You know, like they've got a lot of guys on there who are either in their prime now or at the end of their prime. So, like you said, now is kind of the time that they have to make a run. And if they see that uh, ability slipping away, it makes sense to to get rid of Ken Hitchcock and try something else. Even if like, I don't have a ton of confidence in Mike Yao as a head coach. I don't think he's great, but you know, maybe he'll prove me wrong and maybe a different voice is just enough to get that core group of players playing at their peak for enough time to make some, make some noise in the playoffs. You never know. But, uh, I look at, you know, just, we talked about this in DMs, like you mentioned before we started, that uh, people have been looking at the goaltending this year and how the the Blues have been playing and whether or not you know it's on them or on Jake Allen. And when I looked into it, the Blues are actually giving up fewer scoring chances relative to league average this year than last year. Mm-hmm. And they're actually playing like the exact same way almost, but 
everybody else, like the league league wide scoring chances are up a little bit, right. about fifteen percent. But the Blues are the exact same as last year. So it's definitely not Ken Hitchcock's system that's leading to this problem. So either they need to, you know, get serious and commit to finding a, a goaltender who can make saves, or I don't know what else they can do because I don't think firing Jim Corsi as the goaltending coach is going to make Jake Allen all of a sudden great. Like I've even talked to some junior teammates of uh, Jake Allen recently, and they're saying like this is a guy that every team he's ever played on, players don't have confidence in him, and that's a huge problem. Yeah, it's it, it, it's tough. Like I, I understand that you know if if you're the Blues, it's a lot easier for you to just fire Ken Hitchcock and kind of put it on him and hope that that things will turn around and you can just go from there. But like it's a lot easier to do that than you know getting rid of Jake Allen and Carter Hutton and completely starting from scratch and that like it's it's go, go, coaches are much more disposable in that manner. But it, it is tough. I mean, they went from first and save percentage last year to 30 at this year and i feel like you know just anecdotally i feel like we, we haven't really seen that dramatic of a shift without too many moving parts ever really i mean it, it's remarkable just how much they've cratered in terms of that and, and as you mentioned it, nothing in front of the goalies really seems to be changing that much i understand it's kind of easy to point to them losing a guy like david backus for example who was who was playing some tough minutes for them and is generally considered to be a, a defensively reliable, reliable forward and, and you know point to that and be like this is the reason why they're struggling defensively but the numbers don't really bear that out it's pretty much just the goalies aren't making the saves when the puck's coming to them and whenever that happens it's gonna wind up reflecting poorly on the coach so i don't know i, I think that mike yo's can, can be fighting an uphill battle here unless either jake allen or, or, or carter Hutton or maybe phoenix copley can string together some good performances here it's just like other than that i don't see what mike yo can do to, to make a tangible difference here no it's really tough i mean Unless, you know, the offense takes off to a ridiculous degree, goes on some crazy hot streak, that's the only way you can really compensate for the bleeding goals against, even though you're playing well defensively. You know, a great PDO run would go a long way towards solidifying Mike Yo uh, as a as a decent coach in the eyes of many. But, uh, you know, that's random chance more than anything uh, maybe he'll implement something that that'll help on special teams who knows but mm-hmm. uh, in terms of even strength play i it's hard to imagine they're going to improve by losing ken hitchcock yeah probably not um okay so let's 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 transition toward the montreal Canadiens. um i think that the big question with them heading into the season was essentially would a healthy carry price absolve them of everything that seemed to plague them last season and i think through the first 50 games of the year the answer is yes but it hasn't necessarily played out the way that we might have thought like carry price has been perfectly fine i mean he has a 922 save percentage for the year and that's still fantastic especially when you consider that league average has dipped down to somewhere between 912 and 913 so it's still it's still very good for for you know most mere mortals but for Carey Price it, it is a bit of a downtick from where he's been in his past few healthy seasons and a lot's been made of that in the recent months do you think that it's just one of these things where I, and I know he's mentioned stuff like fatigue and you know the world cup and, and the schedule being wonky as being reasons for for this dip in play do you think it's as simple as that or do you think it's something that you know fans of the team should be a bit more worried about moving forward uh, i don't think it's something to be worried about but i do think it's a little bit more than what he was letting on in terms of fatigue you know obviously he is a, a new father as well so there's that situation to the you know lack of sleep but mm-hmm. i i think he was really like not just 
uh, struggling in December and January, he was bad. Like he was not Carey Price. He he was a nine forty guy in October and November, and then December and January he was like eight ninety five or something like that. Uh, and that's just not Carey Price. And like I looked at uh, the kind of shots that he was facing, and they were ridiculous. Like the Canadians during those two months were abysmal defensively. They were hanging him out to dry, but at the same time he was not making saves that Carey Price regularly makes. And you know all all the goals that went in in on him, especially at even strength, like. There was maybe two over that two-month period where you were like, okay, that's a little bit weak. Which, you know, for any goal, even carry price, you're allowed to let in a weak goal a month. But it's the it's the goals that go in that are great goals that carry price is expected to stop a few of those because he's carry price and he wasn't. And that was the big difference because the Canadians were whether it was like allowing backdoor chances or like perfect deflections. And I think part of it was a little bit of bad luck. Like there were so many shots during that period where it was just like a double deflection through the slot. And it just goes like just inside the post, like right over his glove or right under his glove. And it's just like the kind of thing that you can't really control for, but you know, the performance was lacking. I do think that he was suffering a bit of an injury because he was starting to slow down a little bit in side-to-side pushes. Mm-hmm. And you saw, like, he had that freak out against the New Jersey Devils where he tried to decapitate a guy after he got run a couple of times. I think something was tweaked a little bit, but it was just not a major enough injury that it was anything to worry about. And right. it just slowed him down that little bit enough so that the extra dip in play was pretty obvious. But the last uh, five or six games now, he started to look really good. So it it's a matter of uh, figuring out if he's going to rebound completely or if it's going to be more 920, uh, like the average this season instead of his usual. Well, I mean, even even if he's 920, like, you know, that's obviously still pretty good. But at the same time, I think that a reason for optimism with this team is that unlike maybe in years past where him dipping down in, in performance a little bit would be catastrophic, they actually have stuff working in their favor in front of him where they're not just fully reliant on him. I mean, it is, if you look at this team's sort of shot chairs and everything they've been doing at 515, they've been trending up for as a team for the past three years essentially now but I mean even this year as, as the season's gone along it seems like they've been constantly on, on, on the rise I mean they're up to 53% in shot attempts which is fourth in the league uh, you know 55% in scoring chances which is second the, the, pretty much anything you want to look at they're near the top so I think that you know that, that that's that's a pretty encouraging sign for me when I'm looking at them as, as their sort of chances moving forward but I'm kind of wondering do you think that a lot of that is Michelle Terrian's doing or how much of it do you think is just the fact that they've assembled a, a really good collection of players up front that are just just pushing the pace for them and making things happen. I mean, obviously, uh, Michelle deserves like some of the credit because you you can't have that kind of improvement with no involvement from the coaching staff. But at the same time, you look at like where the, the improvements have come from, and you know, having Jeff Petrie back this year was you know a way bigger deal than anybody believed last year when he went down to a sports hernia. Like the Canadians, th- that was as big of a reason that they tanked as Carey Price going down or Brendan Gallagher going down, uh, and all three of those guys left around the same same time last year so that was like quite the devastating situation and then when you add in alexander radulov like 
I, I can't even find words to say how good he's been for the Canadians mm-hmm. this year. Like, it's unbelievable. The only guy that I've ever seen in the last decade that can protect the puck and create offense out of nothing like Radulov is Sidney Crosby. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, that. it sounds hyperbolic, but that's how crazy dominant Radulov has been on the puck in the offensive zone. And he's brought, you know, an extra level out of Max Pacioretty as well. And those two together are fantastic. And, you know, even without uh, Brennan Gallagher for a good portion of the season, and Gallagher was on like this crazy snake bitten streak before he got injured. So you've basically not had Brennan Gallagher the whole season. They've still been scoring. Uh, Alex Galchenyuk has missed like half the season. They're still able to score their way out of trouble. And then you have, you know, the depth guys have been good players as well and that's something that's plagued the Montreal Canadiens for a long time is their depth players have not been good whether it was uh, running uh, Manny Malhotra on their fourth line for a full year where he was getting like 32% Corsi I mean Tory Mitchell's a big upgrade on that you know and like I'm not a big fan of Brian Flynn as a player because he's pretty one-dimensional like he can only do one thing and that's like skate but he's a better player like he doesn't hurt you every game like a lot of the players that the Canadians have had and then you got like Paul Byron who is just fantastic like you know I don't think Paul Byron's gonna score 20 goals every year because that's crazy he can't shoot like 30 percent forever but man he's a possession driver he's great defensively and he chips in when he needs to offensively like he's one of the best third liners in the league, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I mean, he's amongst the league leaders in, in five on five scoring, and I'm not even I'm not even talking about when you adjust it for for how often he's playing. It's like literally just the raw goal scoring totals are just out of this world for him this season. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you're being hyperbolic about Radulov. I mean, just watching him play, it's it's remarkable what he can do and sort of just boxing guys out. And you know, the other teams at certain times have had to just kind of shadow him with two or three guys trying to dislodge the puck from him and the thing that he can do that you know other guys that might be really good at protecting the puck can't is he has the vision and the skill to actually make stuff happen when when defenses sag towards him and we're seeing that i mean he's he's in the top 10 in 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 primary assists at five on five and a lot of that is just you know as soon as guys can latch onto him he just dishes it over to an open teammate for a wide open scoring chance and when that guy is a max patch i mean that's a that's a pretty good formula for you to have up front yeah, absolutely. And there's other things, too, that have gone their way. You know, like uh, Philippe Deneau has developed into a really good player, which, you know, I think everyone could say that they expected him to be a better player than what he was in the Blackhawks, like just through development. But I don't think anybody ex- expected him to play the way he has this season. I mean, last year when the Canadians traded for him, I took a pr- pretty good look into him uh, as far as his career had gone that far. And he he was a very good possession player, you know, a good defensive player. But in terms of his shooting, he was extremely perimeter guy, you know, like did not go into the slot ever. And this year that's completely changed. He loves hanging around the net. And whether or not that's the Canadians directing him to change his game or uh, taking initiative on his own, he, he's made himself into an extremely effective player. Is he going to be, you know, a, a number one or two center? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, playing between Pacioretty and Radulov for a whole season might inflate the point totals a little bit, but he's been good, like really good. And that that's a huge a huge factor for the Canadians, especially with Thomas Bukanich not being himself and uh, n- not necessarily falling off a cliff, but maybe offensively. He, he hasn't been 
a difference maker. I think that's the main thing. And another person to bring up for the Canadians is Arturi Lekkanen, the rookie. He's fantastic, like incredibly smart player and, you know, great uh, scoring chance producer. He actually leads the Canadians in scoring chances. He's, uh, it's hard to be anything but really positive with Arturi Lekkanen. I think he's going to be a 25 plus goal scorer for a long time. Well, listen, on, on, on the, Philip Deneau point, I mean, credit where it's due. It's been easy to uh, get on Mark Bergevin's case over the years for some questionable asset management and guys he's favored over over others. But I mean, like him turning a couple weeks worth of Dale Weiss into a guy that, you know, the Blackhawks could desperately use right now is, is, a, is, is a big win for him. I mean, just getting a cheap young asset like that, they can play even if he's not necessarily this good just because he's being uh, lifted up by his teammates. Like he's clearly a, a contributor at the NHL level and, and getting a guy like that for for a rental is, is, is always a good move in my book. So I just kind of want to give Mark Bergeron a bit of credit there. Yeah, he's done a lot of those trades where he, he's not moving big assets. Mark Bergevin has been, you know, incredible in turning those into quality players. Even like Tori Mitchell and Brian Flynn, who, you know, they're not game breakers by any stretch of the imagination. He got them for basically nothing from from uh, Buffalo and then ended up turning them into multi-year uh, depth players who can you know help you out. Uh, Jeff Petrie for a second round pick and a conditional fifth. Uh, even this Nikita Nesterov deal, who uh, I'm not a huge fan of putting Mark Barbario on waivers, mm. but if they believe that Nesterov is better than Barbario long term, I guess we'll see. I think they're a little bit less effective at uh, evaluating defensemen than they are evaluating forwards, but I'll give them a chance on that. Nesterov looked all right in his first game. But uh, again, they didn't give up anything for Nesterov unless they lose Barbario. Yeah, yeah. well, that's that's the thing. I, I feel like... You know, I was going to come on here and praise them for what they're doing with a blue line in terms of just loading it up with guys that can actually play and contribute and, and, and do stuff. And, and Nesterov certainly fits that bill. And I think, you know, I was, I was going to praise Barbario for just having a, a really good season. He's been one of those guys that's been sort of a, a 4A player where he's been the fringy type where he's always seemed way too good for the AHL level, but he's never been fully given a chance to do his, do his thing at the NHL level. And this year, the Habs finally gave him a chance. He's looked perfectly fine and, and adequate to me, you know, especially as a third pairing guy. And I think that that's a, a lot of teams could use those types of players because that is one area where, you know, teams just generally don't evaluate defensemen well, but especially third pairing guys where they tend to stick these guys that can barely move there. And, 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 and that's a big problem. So, I mean, if you're having guys like Barbario and Estrov on your, on your, on your, on the depth of your blue line, that, that that's a big upgrade for me. So, well, I guess we'll see what happens with Bar- Bar- Barbario, but I kind of want to talk a little bit about the power play because, um, I know our good buddy Eric Engels wrote about Kirk Muller's creativity and, and how it's been driving their success with that unit. And, and they did that flying V a few games ago, which was pretty awesome to see. But I think a few things that stick out, right? Like they're third in, in goals per hour, which is awesome. They're, they're, they're generating a lot of goals there, but they're literally 30th in, in shot attempts, scoring chances and expected goals. And whenever something like that just blatantly sticks out, I mean, I'm, I'm very skeptical that it will continue. So I feel like unless they're gender like are, are they doing something to completely just rig the system or is it one of those things where they're just getting a lot of lucky breaks and if they don't start generating more shots and scoring chances they're gonna the goals will eventually dry up yeah this is a tough one because i think eric you know naturally when he's speaking to to players and coaches and stuff they don't like to talk about 
what could go wrong. So if something's going right, they'll come up with a lot of explanations of why it's going right. And I know he spoke to Max Pacioretty and he praised their creativity and unpredictability on the power play. But as we know, you know, we're dealing with really small sample sizes on the power play. And generally you want more shots, more scoring chances in order to get more goals. I think the, the fact that they have Shea Weber on the blue line kind of changes things a little bit in terms of expected goals based on like shot locations because his shot is completely mental. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I looked up his shooting percentage on the power play because I thought, you know, maybe this year he's just going crazy, but it's not too far above his career average. He's shooting like his average the last five years or something like that is like 12 or 13 percent on the power play, which is nuts because like Subban had a pretty high. Uh, shooting percentage on the power play for a defenseman and his was like seven percent or something like that so doubling that essentially (laughs) like that's that's crazy like brennan gallagher only shoots like 15 percent on the power play and he shoots from two feet from the from the goal line so like that that's a huge difference maker in terms of power play scoring but you've got four other guys on the ice most of the time and then a whole other shift without shea weber I don't see it continuing. I loved to see the the flying V. They did it again the other night against Buffalo, but uh, like it didn't work as well. The first time they did it, they did it three times in a row, and then they scored on it, which was amazing, hilarious, and amazing. Yep. But uh, I love the creativity, and they do some fun stuff on the power play. But overall, I think they're more lucky than good there. Uh, I mean, Alex Radulov is a big difference maker on the power play because he's able to create like. A lot of two-on-one situations out of uh, out of nothing, like right. just down low. But overall, uh, I'm not too impressed with their power play. A lot of times, like they either score on a crazy goal or it just looks abysmal for the entire two minutes where they can't even get a shot. So, I like their special teams. I don't know what it is with them, but. They've been great five on five, but they're dead last in scoring chances and high danger scoring chances on the power play, and they're dead last in scoring chances against and high danger scoring chances against on the penalty kill. Hmm. So like, there's this huge disconnect going on, and I don't understand what it is outside of, uh, especially on the penalty kill anyway, their personnel because uh, Plikanic is no longer what he used to be, and their best penalty killers the last several seasons were uh, PK Subban. Uh, Lars Zeller and Max Pacioretty. Pacioretty's not playing much on the penalty kill, and the other two guys are gone. Yeah, yeah, no, that that would make sense a lot. I mean, on on the power play, as you mentioned, it, it it kind of adds up that they might not necessarily look that great in terms of scoring chances if it's a lot geared up towards getting Shea Weber in the puck at the point and making him just do stuff with the shot. And and it's always weird. I mean, I, I feel like their power play has generally been very perplexing to me because they've had the assets for it to be a good one. Like they, they've had the top end skill players and, and guys you'd think would be able to generate a lot of offense on the power play, but for whatever reason, there's been a disconnect. So I, I don't know, I guess it made, I guess powered more, more credit to, to Kirk Muller for the job he's done. Maybe he's doing something with it schematically that isn't really registering or, or, or is kind of inflating their numbers, but whatever's going on, it's, it's definitely going to be something worth monitoring moving forward. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's something maybe that Kirk Muller knows that we don't because uh, I well, remember I'm sure last there's a year, lot of things he knows that we don't. 
that this is true, like what it's like <laughs> to play in the NHL. But uh, I know like last year, I believe the Blues were one of the worst teams in terms of shot attempts per hour on the power play. And they still had like a top five or so power play. It was like 21% or something like that. And like I looked at Kirk Muller's history on the power play and it was like all but one season his teams were clicking at 21% or better. So... Like he, he is a good power play coach. There's no doubt about that. He gets it done, but this year it just doesn't seem as sustainable as uh, power plays that he's coached in the past. Yeah, where, where are you at with Shea Weber? Because obviously he got off to that torrid start, and I mean he's been producing a ton on the power play, and, and that's been a big difference maker for the Habs. But um, that, uh, has has he been sort of everything that he was advertised coming coming to Montreal, or, or has there been anything that you've noticed that's kind of uh, made you reevaluate or, 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 or sort of rethink your evaluations of him? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on which advertisements you were looking at, whether or not <laughs> yes, it was yeah. from analytics people or like the mainstream uh, media that like to talk about his presence every thirty seconds of every broadcast for the first forty games. That drove me nuts, right. but. Uh, I think he's about what I expected. You know, uh, his shots even better than what I expected. I was kind of surprised at that because I've, I've never watched Shea Weber like every single game. You know, mm-hmm. I got watched like thirty Predators games a season, kind of thing. But man, it, it's crazy. It's such a difference maker offensively. But I'm, I'm kind of of two minds with Shea Weber because I think that he's been good, not great. But part of that isn't his fault because he's playing with Alexi Emelin and. Emelin had a good run at the beginning of this season with Weber, but for the last 30 or so games, he's just been a mess. Like, And it's not even necessarily the defensive play where he's not very good, but it's that you can tell that Weber's used to playing with a Ryan Suter or a Roman Yossi because he makes these plays in the offensive zone where he puts the puck where he knows his left side defenseman should be in order to generate offense. But Emelin's never there. So, like, you'll see once or twice a game, he'll put a pass to an empty space, and then Emelin will just start skating backwards out of the zone because he's like, oh, okay, it's going to be a turnover. It's going to be a turnover. <laughs> and then it's, it's just, like, these huge miscommunications that, like, Emelin cannot think offensively the same way that Shea Weber can. So, like, you look at his numbers uh, at even strength, and they're extremely low event in terms of goals. Like, he's not on for many goals against but he's not on for like any goals for either Mm -hmm. so that hinders his uh, five on five production so i think that in terms of that i give shea weber a bit of a break but i don't think he's as good defensively as advertised and part of that is because he has he still has like a 96 percent on ice save percentage or something like that and on the penalty kill he's he just looks terrible like he's he's too slow he he doesn't think the game uh, as quickly as you want your top pk unit to think it and for whatever reason the canadians their their number one pk unit is weber emelin Tori Mitchell and Brian Flynn, and those are the single four worst players for on-ice scoring chances against and shot attempts against on the PK. So they're just they've just been getting torn asunder uh, in that four-man group. And you know, obviously uh, Weber isn't the greatest puck mover, uh, but he, he is like adequate there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't think that he's you know you're a franchise defenseman. He has the the shot for it, but he doesn't have the playmaking ability. He doesn't have the transition ability. And to be honest, I don't think he has the modern defensive ability either. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, the, that was the big question we had uh, back when we recorded a podcast in the summer after the trade, it was, it was sort of, 
would they put him with Nathan Boyu as, as sort of a guy that could um, do some of the stuff Roman Yossi did in terms of moving the puck and, and handling a, a, a bigger workload there? But, you know, they, those two haven't been good together by the numbers. And, and you know, they've been going with this Emelin-Weber pairing, as you mentioned. And I don't think that's a, a, a great marriage of skills, as you noted. So I'm kind of curious to see what they do with him. I mean, like you mentioned the breakouts there. Has he at least been competent there because the the big question last year was whether he could do it if he needed to, but he just never really sort of needed to do anything in that regard just because Roman Yossi is one of the three or four best defense in the league at it. So it was always kind of a chicken or the egg situation. Yeah. I, I feel like when he is there, like when he is used to break out, he's pretty good at it. Like if you look at his decision-making process, he's usually making the right ones. Uh, Weber doesn't dump the puck out very often. He, when he has the puck and he's going to break out, it's usually with a pass, never with a carry because he's just not a, a puck skating guy. But like overall, he he does the right things. It's just that he still does not do it very often. Uh, he, he's not a high event player. He's not highly involved. Uh, even in terms of taking the puck away from opposition, he he doesn't really put himself out there that much. He he just likes to stick near the net and you know block shots or try to stick check if a guy tries to carry it across the front of the net. And you know you can argue whether or not that's you know why he has an increased save percentage or on ice save percentage, but. You know, it, it hasn't been that way for most of his career, so I don't see that being a huge difference maker in terms of uh, whether or not it's luck or skill. I, I think he's just a little bit too conservative for his own good because, mm. like, he he has the decision making process and the skill to be a decent breakout guy. He just won't it chooses not to for whatever reason. Yeah, and maybe it's a matter of like conserving energy because like Michel Therrien has been playing him a lot, mm-hmm. like way too much for a player who's above 30 probably but you know who knows and especially with jeff petrie there like petrie can take some of those minutes and he hasn't uh you know pushed that yeah yeah so moving forward um looking at the deadline is there anything that you'd like to see this team do or or, or shore up a certain position i mean i feel like the the Nesterov pickup for a sixth rounder was a smart move just because I'm always in favor of kind of getting ahead of the curve and, and, and paying a bit less while you have more leverage rather than waiting till the day of the trade line trade deadline and then all of a sudden paying a you know a, a, an extreme price just to make something happen like do you think that that was their their one move or do you think that there's something else in the pipeline Bergevin's usually pretty aggressive around trade deadlines, so I, I could see them looking for something else. Uh, I think David Dernay's time with the Montreal Canadiens is probably coming to an end as much as you know he's been better than what a lot of, especially Anglo media, want to uh, uh, recognize this year when he has been healthy. But I think they want a more traditional winger, uh, to especially a goal scorer, to play with Alex Galchenyuk because I think they're going to keep Philippe Deneau with uh, Patrick and Radulov when Galchenyuk's back. So I could see them going for that. In terms of defense, the only way I could see them making a big improvement would be to replace Alexi Emelin on that top pair. And I thought for a while that they were going to try someone else there, but it doesn't seem to be the case. They seem to be extremely happy with that pairing for whatever reason. So I don't know. I mean, they would probably love to get a center, uh, especially one who can score because Placanic doesn't. Mm -hmm. But I think that's just not something that moves on trade deadline day. So 
I, I don't think they're capable of doing that unless they want to part with like Sergachev, which would be crazy considering Markov is probably going to retire at the end of this season. So I don't think it'll be a big move if they make anything. It'll either be like trading somebody who is part of their current core, or not current core, but uh, current lineup to just shift positions a little bit, mm-hmm. or it'll be almost nothing. I'm cool. I'm cool with them sort of pushing all their chips in and making something happen if it is going to be something that's really going to move the needle. Just because if you look at the landscape around them, I mean, they're sitting pretty in the in the Atlantic Division, where in the playoffs the Metro Division's just sort of going to feast on, feast on itself. And I mean, you could argue that if the Canadians are one of the two or three best teams in in the Eastern Conference, then the other two will probably one of them is going to take the other one out in, in the second round of the Metro Division playoffs. So it's like it's pretty wide open for them to make a nice little run here, assuming they get healthy and, and Price figures it out and is actually okay. Like a, I, I don't see why they wouldn't be considered one of the favorites to come out of the East. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that Carey Price is on year like last second last year of his contract, mm-hmm. so they've got this year and next year to really push for a cup. And after that, he becomes probably twice as expensive as he currently is. So it's a lot tougher to build that contending team. So when you consider that and the fact that you know the organization feels a lot of. Uh, I don't know if it's responsibility is not the right word, but maybe loyalty to Andre Markov for him staying with the Montreal Canadiens for so long, even though he had several chances to leave in free agency. Long time have. He's probably going to end up being the second highest uh, defensive scorer of all time on that team. I wouldn't be surprised if they pull a crazy move to try to like go for it this year. Mm-hmm. Something along the lines of like acquiring, say, Matt Deshane out of Colorado. Mm-hmm. But it, it's one of those things where like, can you actually predict that? Or because like, that's such a big trade, right? But I, I wouldn't be surprised if they do something crazy simply because they've got two years in their best possible cup window. Yeah, yeah, I'm all for uh, winning while you still can, especially as you mentioned, uh, while price is still in his prime and at, at a reasonable deal. Um, Andrew, where can uh, where can people check out your work, man? Well, they can check me out uh, on Twitter at Andrew Berkshire, or they can go on Facebook and find all of my articles at uh, Andrew Berkshire page. I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, yeah, Sportsnet, Vice, RDS, I'm everywhere, man. And you're and you're doing a new podcast too. That's right. Yeah, doing a new podcast that's like half hockey, half not either politics or pop culture. It's nice to talk about something else once in a while. I think my life is so obsessed with hockey that uh, after a while you just get tired of it. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir here, man. It's uh, it was nice getting a few days off there during the All Star break to recharge, but uh, I feel like this the second half of the season here is going to be a grind, especially you know once once the trade deadline comes, you know some stuff happens. There's guys moving teams, and and it kind of gets your gets the wheel spinning, gets you excited for the for the postseason. But this little stretch here between now and and the end of February is gonna is sort of like the dog days of uh of the NHL season. Yeah, it's like between games 25 to 60, I find, are kind of brutal. And then once you get close to the playoffs, you get really excited. And then the first round of the playoffs hits and it's like, you know, Christmas in April. It's the best time of the year. Yeah, no, the first round of the playoffs is, is the absolute best where there's just like three or four games every night. And, you know, you get some of these long overtime games and it's just there's, there's always something good on. So I think that uh, that first round is 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 peak hockey season for me. Yeah, you just, it's just mayhem, and you don't sleep, and it's crazy, and everybody's jazzed. It's the best. Yeah, it is the best. All right, Andrew, let's uh, let's get you back on here in a, in a few weeks or so. We'll figure out where the 
where the Habs are at then, and we'll kind of bounce around the league. So uh, thanks for taking the time to chat, man, and, and we'll, uh, we'll check you out later. Anytime, man. I'm happy to do it, and we'll talk to you soon. The Hockey PDOcast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast. Thank you.